Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the travel writer and historian William Dalrymple to talk about his latest book, which is co-written with Anita Anand and is out now in paperback. And it's called Koh-i-Noor, The History of the World's Most Infamous Diamond. Fully welcome. The Koh-i-Noor isn't the biggest diamond in the world. It's about 90th, isn't it? And it's, it's not... I don't think, the most valuable one, presumably. So why is it so special? This, I think, is, is, is the main reason, in a sense, that we wrote this book, because the Koh-i-Noor is, by a very long way, the most famous diamond, certainly in, in the, this part of the world, certainly in Britain, certainly in India, certainly in, in Persia and Afghanistan. Uh, when I launched the book in America, it turns out that the most famous diamond there is the Hope Diamond, and everyone there knows the whole story connected with Elizabeth Taylor and so on. And, uh, and that, I think, has the, has the pride of place as the most gossiped about diamond in that part of the world. But the Koh-i-Noor is a diamond which, rather like the sort of ring of power in Lord of the Rings, has this amazing ability to create dissension, violence, hatred, bloodshed, torture, uh, <laughs> and deception, <laughs> wherever it goes. And um, Are there any diamonds that haven't? <laughs> Well, I think I, I, this is an Indian insight. I mean, diamonds used to come exclusively from India, and as early as the Bhagavad Purana, you get this succession of stories of diamonds which do create bloodshed around them, which, because they're so portable, because they're so covetable, because so many people want them, and because they're so easy to steal, they have throughout human history been objects of desire and people have killed for them you, you know a single diamond can make a can make a fortune and uh, just put it in your pocket take it away sell it to somebody else and and you need never work again in your life so there's very few things in life of which that is true <laughs> sadly and uh, so as early as the Bhagavad Puran which is written down for the first time about 900 AD but the stories in it probably go back another thousand years there you get the germ of this notion, which then sort of expands through Wilkie Collins and Indiana Jones and a million other sort of schlock Hollywood productions, that a diamond is cursed, that it's a diamond can bring incredible bad luck. And in the Bhagavad Purana, the story is about something called the Siamantica gem, usually thought to be a diamond, in some uh, cases said to be a ruby. And the Siamantica gem is the source of the sun's radiance. It's the sun god's own gem. And when it comes down to earth, when a particular devotee does a particular set of penances to the sun god Surya, and he gives it to the king of Dwarka, which is in Gujarat, this diamond leaves a trail of destruction behind it. Uh, Krishna gives it to his father-in-law, his father-in-law gives it to his brother. He takes it out into a jungle, and it's first of all, a, a, a wolf kills the, uh, kills the brother, then a bear takes it from the wolf. Krishna has to go and rescue it, partly because people are saying maybe Krishna has taken it. He gets it, he battles the, the bear, gets the diamond back, gives it to his father-in-law, who's then killed by robbers who want to steal it, and so on. So you get this idea there for the very first time, and, and it is an idea which spreads through literature into the Anglosphere in the Victorian period, and, and, and you know, through Fu Manchu and, uh, and, and a lot of wonderful schlock stuff. Uh, but the Koino is, is the true version of that myth. And literal truth in, 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 in a total non-fiction way, the story in, that we've told in this book, Anita and I, is a story of, of, of an extraordinary succession of, of murders, assassinations, tortures, which has followed the stone wherever it's gone. But what's interesting is that, it's, is that 
it is the legend of the stone, which begins quite late, about the time of Nadir Shah in the 18th century, when the Spectator was already probably publishing. When does it start, Spectator? No, there were about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When, when, the, when the Spectator is originally one, churning out. Yes. And it is, uh, the, the, the Kohinoor is claiming its first victims, and, and British writers start writing about it from the 19th century. And it reaches its moment of international fame when it is the centrepiece of the Great Exhibition in whatever it is, 1841. And the whole of the Crystal Palace is sort of reflected down onto this one object, which symbolises for the Victorians the, the, the generosity, the, 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 the wealth of the empire come back to London. And so, in our time, has become for the former colonised countries a symbol of imperial loot. And so to this day, six different governments claim this, uh, this, this diamond, as well as Britain, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, and the Islamic Emirate of the Taliban. Yes, no, the Taliban. <laughs> Mullah Omar, who knew he had a love of bling. But, yeah. Exactly. It's, I mean, we'll get on some of the more recent stuff, but at what, you know, we haven't unfortunately got your co-author with us, Anita, but how did you... Anita is busy writing, writing a book uh, with a one-month deadline. So oh, dear, right. She apologises to... But how did you listeners. cook up the idea, you know, between you, to do this one, I think our reviewer ungallantly suggested it might have been a letter from your agent saying, "Here's a good idea." <laughs> this was in, um, this was in the very ungallant Spectator review. <laughs> not the case. Not the case. Um, Though uh, what the um, reviewer was getting at is, is obviously completely true. That it is this incredible story. It is. A, it is. It reads like a, a schlock page-turning novel, uh, and yet it is. It, you know, we didn't have to make any of it up. It, it's all there in historical documents. We, we decided to do this for two reasons. First of all, the Kohinoor had glittered in the background of both our previous books. I'd written a book on Afghanistan called Return of a King, which is about the first British invasion of Afghanistan in 1839, and uh, the, the famous retreat from Kabul in 1842, that whole story. And Anita had written a book uh, called Sophia, about the then completely unknown Sophia Dulip Singh, who was the daughter of Dulip Singh, who himself was the son of the last son of Ranjit Singh, the last Maharaja of the Punjab. And Sophia had this extraordinary life, a princess who became a leading suffragette and used to wander around the streets of London with a baseball hat, bat up her dress. And if any policeman came for her, would whack the policeman off the... Uh, uh, and, and then go home to her grace and favour apartment to Hampton Court. Typical metropolitan lefty snowflake. Exactly. And uh, both our books, The Cohen Order Pit, so we both had separately got interested in the diamond and um, had both become aware that all the accounts we'd read about the diamond were quite strongly at variance with the sort of popular mythology of it. That the, There was an entirely false idea of the, of the diamond, the sort of thing you mentioned at the beginning, that the idea that this was the biggest diamond in the world, it isn't. It's not even in the top 100. It, it, there's, there's, there's a whole range of, of myths. And a lot of this, if you say your introduction, kind of started from the get-go when around the time the Victorian Lord Dalhousie was given it, we could say in very That's right. strong italics by the then was he five years old was he ten years old the Dulip Singh so, Sophia's father so that's right in 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 the at the end of the first Sikh war the Sikhs have been defeated by Lord Dalhousie's regiments and as part of the Articles of Surrender Dalhousie personally adds as clause six that the Kohinoor be handed over 
Uh, so I caught my hair. <laughs> and 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 Lord Dalhousie is is a, is the sort of is the sort of Boris Johnson of his day. He's uh, uh, he's viceroy and he wants to be foreign secretary and he's extremely ambitious. And although he works, and this is what one always forgets about about the British in India. At this point, it is the East India Company. He's employed by a public limited company with an office in Leadenhall Street under what's now the Lloyd's Building. He's not employed by the government at all. But he wants a government job next. He wants to be foreign secretary. So he decides to give the Koh-i-Noor to the Queen. Now, it doesn't belong to him or the... Or, <laughs> yeah, as, as, as an article of conquest, it belongs to the directors and the shareholders of the East India Company. But Dalhousie doesn't worry about that, and he just puts in, uh, uh, shall be given to Her That's Majesty Queen Victoria. Bus, <laughs> so ambitious Lord Dalhousie uh, you know, gets assured a nice, a nice dinner party at Windsor on his return from India. And so it enters, uh, enters, enters Britain as an article of loot. So it's not given by anyone. But going back to why we wrote it, about three years ago, in response to an, a growing crescendo of Indian demands for, for uh, the restoration of this stone, the Solicitor General made a statement to the Indian Parliament saying that the Kohinoor was not an item of loot, uh, that it was given by Ranjit Singh freely as a gift to the British. Now, we both knew from our research, from our previous books, that this was complete bullshit. Ranjit Singh was dead. Ranjit Singh was ten years in the grave. <laughs> <laughs> so unless he'd given it by astral projection or so sent it by Ouija board or something, you know, there was absolutely no way that he could have done it. Nor would he have done, because he, you know, his whole policy for his entire adult life was to keep the Brits at bay. So, and, and, well, and, and, and to, to keep the Cohen in order. Yeah. Yeah, there's a wonderful description of how he... Kind of prized it out of its previous victim, you know. Correct, um, with torture and bloodshed. Had his had previous, yeah, the previous owner was a man called Shah Shujo Mulk, and he had his son tortured in front of him until and until he handed over the diamond to to Ranjit Singh. Yes. He still didn't quite do it, didn't he? Was that the whole thing that his his son being tortured wasn't quite enough? He he said he wanted money and a, and a treaty of friendship. And that was what finally no, no, swayed no. it. They had to play good. Cop, and right? everyone, yeah. everyone, everyone were good negotiators in those days. <laughs> So we knew that this whole body... I mean, so let me give you, in a sense, what the story of the Kohinoor has always been told as. So the story, if you read in Wikipedia or any previous version of the, of the story of the Kohinoor, goes something like this. The Kohinoor was discovered at the bottom of the mine of Golconda in deepest antiquity by shackled slaves hacking away at the Golconda mine. It passed into the eye of an idol of the Kakatiya dynasty in southern India, whence it was looted by the wicked Kalji Turks, who lost it in terms to the Lodis, who lost it to the Mughals. Babur seized it for the Mughal treasury. It continued in, in the Mughal line until the effeminate Muhammad Shah Rangila lost it to the Persian warlord Nadir Shah. He'd hidden it in his turban to hide it when Nadir Shah invaded India. But... Unfortunately, both he and Nadishah were sleeping with the same courtesan, Nobai, who as part of her pillow talk let on where the diamond was hidden. And so as he was leaving, Nadishah is said to have said, my brother, as a measure of our eternal friendship, let us swap turbans. And so it was, according to the legend, that the Kohinoor passed to Persia. Now, every single one of those stories turned out to be bullshit. Not one of them. A, Golconda diamonds were never mined. They were alluvial. They were found in, in dead riverbeds. So you have to kind of remove the image of shackled slaves and instead have people like sort of the, the gold panners of, yeah. the, of the United States. So, you know, those stories of, of sort of people in California with pans looking for fragments of diamonds in the sand. Same, but with looking for little bits of diamond. And, and so, they, so 
A, it doesn't come from mine. B, the Golconda mines weren't actually in Golconda. Uh, they were down on the coast, in uh, on coastal what's now Andhra Pradesh. C, there's not a stroke of evidence for anyone ever mentioning this diamond before about 1750. And we have I the first... I think you say there's an eyewitness count about halfway through the 17th century of it being in the Peacock Throne. So, yeah, 1739, Nadir Shah, the Persian, comes and takes the Peacock Throne. And he takes it back to, uh, to his base, which is in Herat, on the Af- what's now on the Afghan side of the Afghan-Iran border. And there he puts on a display of his loot from India and allows all his soldiers and anyone who wants to come to, to, to come and see all the stuff that he's, he, he's captured. And there's an account by... Well, there's two or three accounts, but there's one particular account by a man called Marvi Yazdi, who's one of his soldiers and becomes one of his biographers, who for the first time mentions the word Kohinoor. And this is an account written about 1750 about an event that took place in 1740. And there he says very clearly, the Kohinoor, the famous and celebrated diamond, the Mountain of Light, is the eye on one of the peacocks at the top of the peacock's throne. And that is the first mention we have. And what has happened is that the subsequent fame of the diamond, mostly from after the Great Exhibition, after the whole of after it had been depicted on the front page of the Times or the Illustrated London News, after it had been reflected back to the Empire as, as this as the Victorians' own idea of what imperial loot should be was. Only then does the Kohinoor become in the Indian imagination the big diamond. Now, if you look at earlier accounts of, of Indian gemstones, in fact, there is a huge and rich Indian tradition of writing about gems. It's interesting they liked rubies more for a very the long The Mughals liked rubies more. Yeah. But, uh, in, Persian, in the Persianate world, of which yeah. the Mughals were Persian-speaking and, and living very much in a Persianate-style Timurid monarchy, they big rubies, red stones of light are the sort of thing the Hafiz uh, and the great Persian poets talk about. So, if you were if you were a, a mogul connoisseur of beauty, you aspired to find big red stones, particularly spinels, which are not something we particularly collect in the West today. Spinels are like rubies, but they're from Badakhshan in Afghanistan. And then later on, uh, Burmese rubies begin to trickle into India, and they become the the Mo- late mogul's favourite stone. But in Ancient Hindu literature, a lot of stuff about diamonds. And diamonds, are, as I said, are these things that are actually you know, potentially dangerous things. They, they can, a, a pure diamond without any markings, with not a single scratch on it, can bring extreme good luck. But a diamond with the slightest flaw, and the Kohinoor has a big flaw right down the middle, a Kohinoor with any flaw is considered a cursed item and can bring bad astrological influences to bear. So you have, with, as, I mean, so I much... Like to... You have a, a mention an early, I think it's an early Hindu text, which says that the power of pure diamond can repel thieves. Yes, which, 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 which doesn't stand up to much analysis <laughs> in, the, in, this, in the modern age. So. so as so much of Indian culture is determined by this meeting and mingling of, of indigenous Sanskrit-based Hindu ideas, Indic ideas, and the other ideas coming in with the Islamic and Persian Turkish invasions through North India in terms of language, in terms of food, in terms of ideas of beauty, in terms of architecture. Most Indian culture comes from some sort of reflection of that tussle, that battle, that coming together. But you have two completely different ideas in, in, in gemology, and, 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 the, and the moguls like the redstones, and the Hindus like the diamonds. And so when the Kohinoor is put in the peacock throne, the peacock throne is Shah Jahan's 
way of using the greatest collection of gemstones that was ever been amassed by any monarch in history. The, the Mughals were obsessed with beauty, they were particularly obsessed with gems, and Akbar, Jahangir, and Shah Jahan all collected huge sums and, and made an actual ceremony at Nauru's when it was compulsory for the court to come and just give them diamonds and rubies and, and whatever they had, sapphires, pearls. And indeed, your year's salary, your kind of your rank and nobility, was determined by how good the presents you gave the emperor was. So it was in your interest to find something really special. Yes, it was. It, was it? Is you know, Hanuman, the, the there's one particular emperor who was particularly flaky. Humayun was the flaky. Humayun, <laughs> yes, sorry, Humayun. He's a fantastically flaky character who, nevertheless. You know, the one thing he more or less was interested in were his diamonds, but then he kind of took them off to go wash his hands. And he left it by the side of the river until some little page boy. Yes, he's already lost his kingdom. The last thing he has left is this bag of incredibly valuable diamonds. Uh, And he manages to leave that when he goes for his ablutions. He goes to the loo and leaves his diamonds behind. And the page boy runs up after (laughs) him saying, Sir, sir, you left this. He's the the character we all identify with in this, I think. He is, yeah. He's a very sort of uh, of P.G. Woodhouse-style mogul. Anyway, sorry, you were saying Peacock Throne was this great... So Peacock Throne. So Shah Jahan, all the moguls, but particularly Shah Jahan, realised that beauty, aestheticism, architecture can be used as an instrument of statecraft, that you can you can orchestrate beauty in such a way that it enhances your your legitimacy, your status, your your reputation as a ruler. And so all these great Mughal palaces, these enormous big cities, the building of the Taj Mahal, the building of of, of the Red Fort in, in first in Agra, then the the great Shah Jahanabad, what we today call Old Delhi, the Red Fort there. All these are built by Shah Jahan, but his the single most expensive thing he ever does is to make the single most expensive piece of furniture in the history of the world, which is the peacock throne. And on that, he just throws everything that three generations of moguls have collected. And it is this one... It doesn't look like a throne so much in our idea of a throne. It's not a seat. It's like a kiosk. I mean, you can sell ice creams from it. <laughs> or a garden shed, even. It's a, it's a, it's a canopy... Over a over a raised a raised seat a raised throne platform. It's only did when, I mean, you've got a lovely passage about how when Nader Shah you know gets to Delhi, and he goes right chap you know loot away, and then they're just astonished by how much how stuff much there is, <laughs> and you know, it's tumbling into rivers and people are running away with it stuffed down their trousers. Did he know pants. that he was going to find the peacock throne? I mean, was had the fame of the peacock throne spread as far as as his you know. Persian. Yes, I think it had. There's, there's a passage before he gets to India where he mentions to somebody who writes it down in Persia that he's going to pluck some golden feathers from the mogul's peacock's tail, oh. which seems to be a hint that he's going after the peacock throne. The idea he has is that I mean, Nadir Shah is this fascinating character. He's a he's a very sort of sort of a Thatcherite meritocratic figure in some ways. He's a very humble background. Furthers a furrier, stroke shepherd on the step. The son, ambitious, rises in the army, eventually creates a military coup, takes over Persia, and comes to the Mughals. And the Mughals have, you know, uh, at the peak of their sort of cultural sophistication under Muhammad Shah Rangila, who's this sort of cross-dressing aesthete who commissions gorgeous pictures and wonderful architecture, but has never picked up a sword in his life. And doesn't pay his army. And doesn't pay his army, can't be asked for the army, can't be asked for the administration, really. Just organises really good parties and, 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 and some of the greatest you know, musical extravagances ever planned by any man on earth. And Nadishad just comes in with 100,000 crack cavalry that have got the latest gizmo, which is this very heavy musket that can fire through armour. 
It's on a, he, he kind of builds a very simple sort of tripod that allows this big, heavy musket to rest on a horse's neck. And this is just a brilliant invention, and, and, he, and he just cuts his way, even before he ever gets to India, through the Russians and the, and the Turks. And then he comes, and there is the largest army ever, ever fielded by any Indian army, 1.5 million men, of whom at least half are fighting men. And it's, they're, they're a big, heavy cavalry army. They're all in, uh, in, in heavy horse armour, well, elephant armour. It's sort armor. of two miles wide and nine miles long or something. All that description stuff, of yeah. The, and this yeah. huge battle on the... On the kind of, and, and Nadia Shah does, a, does the old thing of the faint retreat. They all run away. And at the last minute, his light cavalry part to reveal a long line of these swivel guns, as they're called, these heavy muskets. And five minutes later, it's all over. The cream of Mughal chivalry lie bleeding dead on Canal Field. And he then invites Mohammed Shah Rangila, who, you know, was obviously terrific company. And so, you know, we'd, we'd all like to have dinner with Mohammed Shah Rangila. And Mohammed Shah Rangila sort of, you know, uh, says, sure, I'll come to dinner, and comes over. And, and then he's not allowed to leave. Of course, he's just arrested. Nadir Shah takes Mohammed Shah Rangila back to Delhi. And that's kind of the end of the Mughals, isn't it? That's and that's the end of the Mughals, because you know, everything that they've gathered over, over five generations of looting everyone else in India is just taken away in a single day. Uh, and they march off back. And, and he's so, Nadir Shah is so pleased with himself, as he's passing Rolpindi, he sends three messengers. One is to Persia to say that all, ca- all taxes are cancelled for five years. <laughs> <laughs> then he sends one to Topkapi and one to St. Petersburg, with just one elephant full of a howder full of goodies. And they're the leftovers, you know, it's the rubbish. But today, when you go to the Top Kapi Palace in, uh, in Istanbul, the, the treasury room, the, the, the treasure there, what you see is not actually made by the Turks. This is just the stuff that Nadir Shah sent over his leftovers. <laughs> and that today is the greatest kind of treasure room in the Eastern world. There's also a similar room in the Hermitage, uh, which, uh, which contains the, the Mughal stuff. The stuff that was left in India is dissipated and you can see sort of fragments of it in Palace and, uh, and little bits of sort of Clive territory but uh, there's no we didn't seem to have the same eye for jewellery as we did I think we just melted it down and, and built nice Georgian country houses well actually that, that does bring me to something I wanted to ask about which is you know fast forward of you know a couple of hundred years when the gem comes to London or to I think, does it come to Victoria in London or does it go to the... Well, there's a rather good story about that, which is from Anita's half of the book, which is that this, you know, this, this, the reputation of diamonds is only really getting going by the time that the Brits have got their hands in it. Um, and it's dispatched on a ship called the Medusa, a steam sloop called the Medusa out of Bombay. And no one knows it's on board other than one of Dalhousie's nephews, who's the, who's the kind of mule carrying the, the diamond. Well, Dalhousie muled it himself, didn't he? He but carried the, himself. The nephew was the... So Initially, the first person to have it was a guy called John Lawrence, uh, who was this uh, sort of pious evangelical that wasn't interested in gems at all. And when the kind of you know the FedEx courier came and knocked on the door and said, "Delivery for delivery for Mr. Lawrence, where's the Koh-i-Noor? He sort of does that thing you know when you lose your phone and you pat down your <laughs> pockets and you can't find your credit card or your phone, and he goes, "Oh Christ, what have I done with the Koh-i-Noor? And he, you know he pulls his wardrobe apart. He you know looks under the loo. He kind of looks behind the pillows on the sofa to see whether he's dropped it there. And he can't find it. And eventually he finds his manservant and says, what was I wearing that day? And he said, I, you were wearing this tweed jacket. He said, was there anything in it? And he said, oh, just a piece of glass. I put it somewhere. I think it's in that cupboard there. And anyway, it's found. So anyway, he finds his way to Bombay. It's put on the steamship Medusa. 
And the steam supercharger says only 12 hours out of Bombay when the first sailor goes down with cholera. And then the second and the third. It's a bit like that, that scene in Fitzcarraldo. Not Fitzcarraldo, <laughs> was it? It's like that scene in Nosferatu, the Herzog film, where Dracula's coming to, to Amsterdam and all this crew die. By then, it's just the captain tethered to the, to the tiller with rats running around. It's that, it's that story again. So the crew, one by one, die of cholera. And no one knows why this is happening. And, and uh, they try and stop in Mauritius because, they, because they're all dying. And, and the Mauritius won't let them stop. Mauritius won't let them stop. <laughs> threatens to blow them out of the water if they, uh, uh, if they land. And then they, they sort of go over the, go over the equator uh, and then they hit the biggest typhoon in five years and, and there's you know, one mast left and, and half, half a captain and sort of three quarters of a mate. And as they enter British waters, on Primrose Hill, Peel is thrown from his horse and, and it crushes him and he dies. The, then the day arrives in Portsmouth, a madman rushes out of the, out of the crowd near Buckingham Palace and wallops Queen Victoria over the head with a, with a gold-topped cane. So she receives the Koh-i-Noor that evening with a black eye and stitches. And, uh, and, anyway, the, and when she uh, receives it, she's not all that impressed with it. I mean, one of the sort of striking things, it's been cut, she, she said, well, hasn't been cut very well. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't reflect... I mean, it was interesting. there's obviously the Mughal style... Exactly. Was cut, was it maybe pre-Mughal? That it so was the Mughal style would have cut. been perfectly acceptable and familiar to any of our medieval ancestors. When you go to one of those lovely cathedral treasuries in France on your holidays or go to Saint-Marco and you see all those cabochon stones that sort of left in their natural shape and Saint-Foy and Conque or something, you see these gorgeous medieval vessels which, which, like the Mughals, value stones for their natural shape and their size. Uh, and the idea that you improve a stone by cutting it and reducing it is an idea that was as alien to our medieval ancestors as it was to the Mughals. You want you want your stones big. You don't want them shaped. But from and they about, cut them a bit, did they? Just to, to so the Mughals to... and and our medieval ancestors used to like doing a very simple what's called a rose cut, which is just a little bit of flanging around the top. But the idea that you facet everything and make it perfectly symmetrical is a Victorian idea, and it comes into it starts in it starts in in Venice probably. Um, there are various theories about where faceting starts. It could have started in India. One theory is it was. Uh, but the most likely story is either Amsterdam or, or Venice. And by the 19th century, everyone, every Victorian had got used to the idea of wedding rings and, and diamond rings, which were just becoming popular in the, in, in the early 19th century. And your, your diamond ring was faceted, symmetrical and glittered. So when the Koh-i-Noor turns up, about which already there's been a huge amount of publicity, this cursed stone, the stone of the East, the stone of the Mughals, it arrives in Britain and it's just this lump it's called the Koh-i-Noor, the mountain light, because it does actually look like a mountain. It looks like Arthur's seat. It's got this sort of big knobbly front and this sort of tail that goes down like a tadpole behind it. And it's very big, but it's not very pretty, really. It's, it, it's an odd shape. Uh, it, it does look like a mountain. And um, they, it's put as the centrepiece of the Great Exhibition and no one likes it. <laughs> so they try, and, they try and sort of improve it. But Prince Albert, who's... I mean, it's rather, it was rather like the kind of Millennium Dome, the, 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 this Crystal Palace. It was this huge, public, expensive, big noise, celebrity sort of run uh, show about the empire. And people queued up. A third of all British people went to it. I mean, it's only, you know, the buses and trains from the highlands and people pouring into London to see this thing. But the thing at the centre didn't impress anybody. And people queued days to see the Koh-i-Noor. And Albert was in trouble, unlike Tony Blair was with the, with the Millennium Dome, because the, the, it didn't glitter. So various 
ideas have, have floated about you know, how can you make the Koh-i-Noor look, look, look prettier. So they build a little sort of potting shed in the middle of the thing. The first, the first thing is, is it's too bright, the Crystal Palace. It is a Crystal Palace, so it's obviously it's sunlight streaming in. So they build a little potting shed, a little dark sort of uh, enclosure for the Koh-i-Noor, hoping that that will make it clear. And then they try and sort of you know arrange gas lamps behind it, flickering in reflective ways. Uh, and Mr. Chubb of Chubb's Lock builds a special container for it that'll reflect it. None of this quite works. In fact, all they built is they built the first ever sauna in Britain. And everyone goes in there and all these Victorian ladies busk sort of faint at the heat and sort of fall, fall sort of flat on their faces and have to be carried out. So it's a complete failure. And after the Great Exhibition, Prince Albert decides to sort of take it out on the Koh-i-Noor by having it recut. And all the gem experts said, you cannot recut it because it's, it's got this floor down the middle. It might uh, break. It'll break. Or well, it won't just break. What, what will happen if you cut a diamond against its natural crystallogical grain? It is just a piece of carbon. And like, like, as with coal, it will ultimately burn. And they'll say it'll just, you know, it'll catch fire. It'll, it'll just burn if you, if, you try, if you insist on cutting it diamond on diamond. But anyway... There is a, a firm from Amsterdam that say they can do this, that they have the expertise to do this. And so it's given to them. The first cut is given to the Duke of Wellington, who's pulled out of retirement. And, uh, and there's a kind of celebrity shed erected somewhere in the Haymarket where they, where they cut this thing. And, and Wellington is right. Wellington incidentally falls down dead about a week after this, another possible victim to the curse of the Koh-i-Noor. Anyway... They do the cut against everyone's best judgment, and it comes out under half the size. Yes, that was this amazing thing, because they, they hadn't promised. They said, oh, we can do this without substantially reducing the price. Under half. Under half. So when Dulip Singh is then shown this diamond by the Queen in the Isle of Wight, a couple of months later, he can't believe this is the same thing that he, he gave he gave to Dalhousie as a child because it, it, it's half the size. It, you know, it's, yeah. the whole point of it is it's, it's gone. It's, it's, it's very glittery. And today, if you go to the Tower of London and look at the Koh-i-Noor, you'll find that most people don't actually realise that the Koh-i-Noor is the Koh-i-Noor because it's in a it's in a case now with all the Cullinan diamonds. The Cullinans are the biggest diamonds in the world. They were found in in South Africa in the nineteenth century. And the Cullinan one, the big Cullinan, is the size of a rugby football, while the Koh-i-Noor is the size of a sort of, I mean, a bit bigger than the quail's eggs, a, bit, a goose egg, maybe yes. a goose egg. And so, because so many South Asians feel so strongly about it, one of the great sort of comedy shows in London, actually, is if you go to the, the, the Tower of London, and uh, to stop Indians... Um, <laughs> swearing at it, shouting, chor, chor, thief, thief, and, 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 and creating a ruckus. They, they, the latest setup at the London has a sort of conveyor belt, like an airport running, running beside it to stop people sort of massing on the Koh-i-Noor. So you'll only, only uh, get two or three seconds to so shout, you only chor, get to the, chor, you, you, you get two or three. So what you actually see when you go there now is lots of Indians moonwalking backwards, <laughs> <laughs> but shouting chor, chor at the wrong time. Because <laughs> they think, they, they think the Koh, they're not sort of properly signposted. There's, there's, there's stuff down quite far below the actual case, but because they're walking backwards doing a moonwalk, they can't read it. <laughs> And the Koh-i-Noor, and actually no one notices the Koh-i-Noor, which is sitting there, quite small and diamond, working its evil magic to this day. And once again, it's, it's myth outlasting. Yeah. I, I, I should just ask before we end, on that political note, you're relatively circumspect at the end of the book on the question of what should actually happen to the diamond. Now, were you and Anita as one on what should happen to the diamond? What do you think? Do you think it should be repatriated? 
Does she disagree? So we, we both take the view that it's not going to be repatriated. So in a sense, it's not even worth raising the questions. I mean, obviously, there are six governments currently who want it back, which in a sense helps let the British off the hook slightly, because, you know, you can, you can then play the game, who do we give it to? Maybe, you know, give a little bit to the yes. <laughs> give Muller Omar a tiny bit. <laughs> So I think, you know, I don't think it's on the table, and nor will it be in our lifetime. So we haven't sort of come down and said, you know, this needs to go back to Bangladesh or Pakistan or India or Afghanistan. There is pretty little doubt that it came from what is today India. There is, I'd say, is probably as high as a 95% chance that it's from the Godivari, uh, Godivari Delta in what's now Andhra Pradesh. And therefore, if it was to go anywhere, I think India definitely gets the first the first claim on it. But I think in reality, it's not going to go anywhere. I think uh, I think this is something which um, also it has been more or less nicked throughout its history. It's been it? nicked by everyone, and, and and you know the last Indian from whom the British did force it by by treaty having to, uh, at the point of a bayonet, you know the, the Sikhs took it from uh, Shah Shuja, the Afghan ruler. Uh, by torturing his son. So it is, you know, diamonds have passed. I mean, you know, if it, if it does pass from this nation at any point in the future, I suspect it will be, again, at the point of a bayonet after, a, after a, some future war uh, and, and, and will remain, as it has always been, the spoil of the victor. William Dalrymple, thank you very much. And you've been listening to the Spectator Books podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please do rate, review and subscribe to us on Amazon or iTunes or whichever your podcast provider is. And you'll find much more to enjoy, I hope, in this week's Spectator Books section.